Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my lovely wife Liberty. We're a married couple with different hobbies who try to force them upon each other through the latest news in books and sports. I am the book lover. Really? Just kidding. I am the sports lover. My wife is the book lover. And today's... I, I hope you become a book lover. That'd be fantastic. One day in the Neverland of Never. Um, Rude. <laughs> we might get there. But today's episode is the book episode. Thank God. Which is your favorite. It so really is. I guess we'll get down to it since I don't have any book news. It probably leaves it to you a little bit. Well, she who shall not be named has written another children's book. And for some reason, her publisher has not walked away from her, probably because she's their cash cow. And that's all they care about. It is a non-magical book and is something that she wrote for her children when they were little, but decided to dust off during the pandemic to write it up as a whole work of fiction for her. I bring this up not because I want people to go out and buy it, but because... I just cannot believe her publishers are standing by her after everything she said and done. I know we stand by her Harry Potter works, the original seven books, but anything since then, I don't stand by anything she's said or done in her life. I don't stand by. Yeah. And so I can't believe her publishers haven't dumped her at this point. But again, she is probably their cash cow. I was going to say, I'm like, I... I don't feel like that's somebody you ever get rid of. It's just... She will probably be making them money for the rest of her life and possibly after. So if all you care about is money, then I guess I get it. All publishers care about, for the most part. And uh, don't take that in a negative way because we are trying to partner with you guys. (laughs) It's just, I think at some point you have to decide, do you stand for the community that she is trying to oppress or do you stand for making dollars? Yeah. And... You can stand wherever you want on that spectrum. It's just I don't think that's a great position to be taking where you want to continue publishing her work. But the thing that really stuck out about this is she says the book is, and I quote, a story about truth and the abuse of power, which I think is really rich coming from her of all people. Who's abusing her power to make statements that are horrible. Right. But also, if you were around when Harry Potter was getting big, she was making her billions of dollars, she would hide behind lawyers and write cease and desist letters to people who were writing fan fiction because she felt like they were stealing her work. That'd be just the same as like somebody who was like a DJ taking snippets from actual songs being also accused of the same thing. So. Right. And like, I kind of understand and I don't at the same time. And, I mean, she's done this not only for fan fiction, she's done it for art and things like that. So, like, she's always kind of had this, I guess, nasty side to her personality. It's just we didn't know how far it went until Twitter happened. Right. And I just think it's really strange that she's talking about abuses of power in a children's story. And, you know, she uses her money and her power and her her lawyers to say and do whatever she wants. Right. The standard billionaire, millionaire mindset. The only real good thing about her making so much money is she was donating a lot of it originally. She was the only person to ever become a billionaire and then drop down into millionaire status from donating so much money. Yeah. So, like, that's the only good side of it. Yeah. But I guess someone I kind of do want to promote is Darcy Coates. She's a well-published but self-published author 
from Australia. She had self-published 23 books through, I'm assuming, what is Amazon's self-publishing arm. Okay. And in 2020, the publishers at Sourcebooks bought 17 of her works and are publishing them for U.S. readers. Interesting. I think it's interesting. I think she's really built up a following over the years and people love her work. She writes mystery thriller horror novels. Okay. And usually it's what some people call atmospheric horror novels. So it's set in like old aging towns or mysterious mansions and it's got that creepy atmosphere in the story. Okay. And in an interview, she came out with this what I'm calling creepy quote. Where she said, I've always wanted to capture the feeling you have when you're outdoors at night and someone starts to tell eerie campfire stories. A special kind of dread rises up, the kind that's both addictive and consuming. So you know she needs therapy. (laughs) But doesn't everyone? If I were into the genre, I would probably dive into this, download as many as I could onto my Kindle, or buy them outright when they're published through source books. Right. Not my genre, though. I remember reading And Then There Were None when I was in high school by Agatha Christie. Okay. And I was so creeped out when I finished the book at like three in the morning that I was in my room and I called my mom on her cell phone and she was in the next room over because I was too afraid to go to the bathroom by myself. And so she like came out and it was like, what the hell is happening? (laughs) I was like, I'm scared. And she thought, like, something was going on, but, like, no, I just finished my book. Yeah. So, like... And I'm on edge now. Please come help. Atmospheric horror, I feel like, (laughs) would just not be the thing for me. Yeah. But it would also probably be a good, like, new take on horror if you're someone who's read the genre before and maybe didn't like it or read so many that are much of the same thing. It sounds like she's a new voice for horror. Yeah. Go read her books instead of J.K. Rowling's books. Or She Who Shall Not Be Named's books. Well, you just named her, so that kind of defeats the purpose, but yeah. That's what editing is for. (laughs) Well, if you leave that in, it definitely sounds bad. (laughs) Like, what'd they edit out? You'll never know. Anyways. Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried is coming to the big screen. The book is one of the most widely acclaimed books about the Vietnam War. Yeah. It's been picked up by production companies Hardy, Son, and Baker, and MJZ. I don't know who they are, but they picked it up. The producers include David Zander, Tom Hardy, Dean Baker, and Amy T. Who? No other information has come out yet, so it'll probably be a while. As for another adaptation, Tomi Adeyemi's Children of Blood and Bone is being adapted into a film for Disney. The rights were acquired originally by Fox 2000, but since the companies have merged, now it's also a Disney production. It is being produced by Lucasfilm, and it's the first Lucasfilm that isn't part of either Star Wars or Indiana Jones. The book tells the story of a young runaway princess named Zaley, possibly is how you pronounce that? Yeah. And her brother... They're on a journey to bring back magic before the crown prince gets rid of it for good. So it sounds like a fantasy novel. It is one that I have been gifted through a book box. It is currently on my to-be-read shelf and has been since I got it. So, my bad. Well, it took a while for book two to come out, so I didn't want to read it before book two was going to come out. Because you didn't want to have to make that 
awful wait where you're like, what's going to come next? Right. And then I've heard that some people really liked it when they read it, but a few years later they don't anymore. I'm still going to read it. Eventually? Eventually. (laughs) Look, everyone who likes reading understands that if it's on the to-be-read shelf, it will be read. It's just when. At some point. Yeah. Eventually. But at least it's on the shelf. So there we are. Do you remember the soccer player Megan Rapinoe? No, who's she? You're asking a I sports will punch fan you about sports. With a book. I assume you know her. Yes. She has written a memoir called One Life. It is going to come out on Tuesday, the 10th of November. Yeah. But in the memoirs, she doesn't just discuss soccer plays or injuries, stuff like that. She's also discussing her, what she's calling political awakening. Yeah. So she's realizing her white privilege and she discusses that, but also how black service members are excluded from the GI Bill, the pay disparity between male and female soccer players. Right. And so it's not just... If you can work really hard, you'll make it big and you'll do well. It's also realizing that people are people and everyone works hard. Yeah. And that privilege doesn't make you a bad person, but it does help you. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. Again, it's something I didn't hear about till like a week prior. She just got married to... I'm trying to figure out to who, and it's going to drive me crazy if I can't find it, but... Um, Is her wife not the person who ran up to her at, during that one game? Probably, but I'm having a real struggle. But she's also Sue an athlete. Bird. Basketball player. That's She's in the WNBA. So yeah, the two of them are both crazy good athletes, and... WNBA legend and four-time league champion Sue Bird... Yeah, they're, they're, they're an amazing couple, honestly. Like I think they're just engaged. I don't know that they got married. I swear they just got married. As of this article, on October 31st, they were just engaged. Yeah, I guess you're right. I, I could have sworn they were just recently married. It's in Point to me. me. Yep. Success. They must have gotten engaged then on October 31st. I knew that they had just became like a super couple. I just couldn't remember why. They are what they're calling the sports power couple. I believe it. It's true. So, and she's got a book coming out, so that's all good. That's exciting. (laughs) I do have one little tidbit of news that I found while I was surfing the web looking for news just now. Portland's iconic Powell's book is selling a book-scented unisex fragrance. I didn't know fragrances had a gender, (laughs) a sex. What is happening? I'm not sure either. But it is a book-scented fragrance that you can have. What does it smell like? Books, I would imagine. Pages? I'm not sure. Fresh printed pages? It it says, now, Powell's City of Books, the popular Oregon-based bookstore, has released a unisex fragrance named Powell's by Powell's. And that puts the exact scent in a bottle with hints of violet, wood, and biblicker. You can buy the perfume for $24.99. It aims to replicate the smell of old paper that creates an atmosphere ripe with the mood of possibility, it says. <laughs> well, any book lover knows that we are constantly trying to find things that smell like, like books. freshly printed books. Yeah. Well, this one's aiming ah. for like the old pages of books. Not like the stinky kind that aren't treated well, but like history. You you smell the history in the book. I don't know. It was the one weird thing that I saw in the news that I thought was pretty funny. I mean, I like candles. Yeah. I would do a candle like that, maybe. It was part of 
a thing that they were developing to kind of try to find another way to make money during all this pandemic nonsense. So Makes sense. Yeah. Pretty cool, though. Literally makes sense. Huh. You didn't even realize huh. you made the pun, did you? Huh. <laughs> that was what a the... great joke to go with that. <laughs> I'm really sad that you were so mean to me just now. <laughs> it wasn't even a joke I meant to make. <laughs> All right, moving on. Yes. So there is now a foundation in North Carolina that is donating beds and books to families in need. Okay. It is called A Bed and a Book, which was started in February by Annalise Wall. Okay. They build the beds and then deliver them with age-appropriate books. And the beds that they build have their own little bookshelves on them. So are, are the bookshelves like under the bed for the frame or are they like above the bed frame or are they just bookshelves that come with them? It says that they are built into the beds. It does not specify how. So I would imagine it's probably under the bed then. Possibly. Yeah. But like you get your own little books and little bookshelf. That's cute. I think so too. I think that's great. And they said the reason that they were starting the organization is they saw that there were a lot of families in need at the beginning of the year when they were thinking about making this foundation. But then the pandemic just kind of made everything that much more sped it up dire, I guess. Yeah. So I think they were doing this week 15 beds that they were building and delivering. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, as I, as I told you earlier this morning, I think once the people stop reading and or learning, the society just breaks itself down. So, like, I'm not by any means a big book worm yet, but I am a believer that when you stop educating yourself, things go to hell. So I think that's really cool that they're getting kids started early and giving them a really cool bed frame and bed as well as books. Yeah, and I mean, dinosaurs didn't read. Look what happened to them. They died. You're yeah. right. It was a little bit out of their hands, but, you know, probably could see like a T-Rex trying to catch the meteor as it was coming down. That's what came Mm. to my head. (laughs) And the last news piece that I have is a comic book company, something like that, called Ablaze, has picked up the license for Grumpy Cat Comics. That's fantastic. The license was previously held by Dynamite Entertainment. Dynamite. And the first book that will be released under the deal will be Grumpy Cat Awfully Big Comics Collection, which will be almost 300 pages and will be on sale this January. Interesting. But I know Grumpy Cat herself has already died, which is sad. Yeah. Poor Grumpy Cat. We don't like sad cats. No. As for the tag for this week, I've been lately splicing up different tags to get questions I think you can answer because I've discovered that your answers are always Harry Potter related or Divergent related because that's all you've read outside of school stuff. Yeah. So I took a bunch of questions from a bunch of different tags and made my own thing. Yeah. So are you prepared? Sure am. First question is, how many books do you own? (laughs) <laughs> probably like me personally like you four, personally like four books probably and then i have a couple ebooks so like five six yeah. maybe yeah somewhere in there well i took it to mean how many physical books do you own because i'm not going through my kindle that'd be a nightmare <laughs> i could imagine but physically the books that i own that go in this library that we're in yeah 468 For some people, that's not a lot. For some people, that's really a lot. Comparing my library to, like, Lala from Books and Lala, she just out 
outdoes me by like two or three times more books than I have. Yeah. So for her, this would not be a lot. For most people, especially people who don't read a lot or they're new to reading, this is quite a lot of books. She also gets sent a lot of books for free, which we're trying to hopefully do maybe soon. But uh, Well, she gets them sent for review. Yeah. So, And I do have books that I've gotten for review, but they're all e-books. under the banner of either ebooks or like NetGalley specific arcs yeah. that really only works in their app. And so if those counted, that's like another 40. If you count books that I own on my Kindle app, that's probably another 100 maybe. So about 600 if you include all the ways to consume books. Question number two, I think is a fun one. I don't know how you'll feel about it. Okay. Is there a fictional character that you would have dated in high school? Like, if you had met them in high school, you would have been like, they need to be my girlfriend. Um, I've always been attracted to smarter girls, so I probably would have Hermione, honestly. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised and it's, at and all. It's, and it's not for the reason that I think, like, everybody's like, well, she grew into such a beautiful woman. No, I probably would have dated her when she was... A kid, you like know, 13. like when I was that age, yeah. If you were both 13 or yeah. something, yeah. Yeah, just to clarify that, not in a weird way, like, but like, if we were both 13, yes. Yeah. And I wouldn't have been bothered by it, because I would have been like, A, she's always confident in herself, and I think that's extremely attractive. Yeah. And then, on top of that, like, having some intelligence and not just being like, you know, dumb, as a bag of rocks, like a lavender brown or something like that, you know, or like... Uh, I, I feel like that would be better. So my brain wants to say if I met like a bad boy, I would date them because that's the kind of guy I dated in high school. And like <laughs> my brain wants to say it'd be like a sexy bad boy, like Kaz Brecker or something. And in reality, it'd probably be more along the lines of Crab and Goyle. Like they're bad, but like they're also just complete idiots. Yeah. So probably something unsexy like that. Well... That's a choice, I guess. (laughs) Question three. Are there any kinds of books you refuse to read? If so, which? Um, I'm anti, like, the smut love story thing. I don't really like that crap. Well, yeah, I wouldn't expect you to like that. That's not written with you in mind, I don't think. Yeah, so those books would be an absolute no-go. I'm not really into that. Good good. thing I don't have any to offer. Yeah. It's not my genre either. Thank goodness. I really don't enjoy historical fiction, manga, or nonfiction. Yeah. Like, I read books to escape. Why would I want to read something in reality? That's insane. Yeah. So, that's mine. What is your worst bookish habit? I know the one that you think is my worst bookish habit is the fact that I can just get up in the middle of a chapter and suck down the book. That's disgusting. I also, I won't eat while I'm reading, but I definitely have drink around a lot and like I always have like water or some form of hydration or caffeine around and I only do that because like going back to sports podcast I played a lot of sports so staying hydrated was always kind of beat into my brain so I have a lot of liquids near books which I know is not something you're supposed to do but if you get something on my books you have to buy me new books just remember yeah for mine I said not taking the time to truly let a story absorb in my brain because there was one time I was trying to get to my Goodreads goal for the year and I had like 50 some odd hours and I was three books down. So I literally read three full novels 
in one 24-hour period because I was trying to catch up. And so I do stuff like that. Yeah. Or like this year, I'm being real mean to myself and trying to make myself read two or three books a week. And, you know, some stories I think need time to really process them as you're reading them. Yeah. And I think I don't give myself enough time to do that. You've, you've slowed down the crazy pace that you normally read. So I don't know, like, I feel like it should be getting better, not worse. But you also have more work now because we're doing all this. So, like... Yeah, I'm probably this week going to be reading 200 pages or more a day to hit my page count. Yeah. So, like, I wish that I could read it more slowly like I did, you know, a few years ago when I would only read, like, 100 pages a day. Right. So... Question number five. Have you ever regifted a book you've been given? Yes. And I will tell you which one it was. It was something that was given by my grandmother when I was younger. I liked the first book of Harry Potter so much that my grandmother picked up some of the first editions from the UK while she was there. I gave them to Liberty and the Postal Service so kindly stole one of them. They did steal one of them, Um, yes. So, yes. And do I regret maybe just not giving them to you when you came to California? Probably. Yeah. So, like, I'm a little sad, but at the same time, I'm like, well, it was out of our control, more or yeah. less. I have never re-gifted a book, but I have brought a book that I've already read to, like, a white elephant before. Right. So, I mean, kind of the same thing, except not because I bought that for myself. Yeah. Question six. Have you ever spoiled a book for someone? I don't think so. I don't feel like I read enough to do that. Like... I probably on the podcast have ruined it for a couple people thanks to our conversations about the book because I will say if at this point in time you are like my husband and you have not read the series then like that's kind of on you. I already know like three people that actively listen to our podcast that have not read through Harry Potter. What is happening? And I have told them that they shouldn't. And then I tell them what episodes they should listen to when I'm watching the movie. Because I feel like the movie to book comparisons don't spoil as much conversationally as like... Well, we flat out say in one of them, when Snape kills Dumbledore, yada yada yada. I remember when that book came out and someone was driving through the parking lot at a Barnes and Noble or something and he just shouted out, Snape kills Dumbledore, and then drives off. And, like, that made national news that this guy spoiled the book for everyone. And, like, no one believed him until they got to that part. I said that I've never intentionally done that to someone, but I think I have accidentally spoiled some Harry Potter stuff to friends because I've been the person throughout my life who went, well, if you read Harry Potter, I'll go to church with you, or if you read Harry Potter, I'll read whatever you want me to read, stuff like that. So I think I might have accidentally done So you bribed people into church by... No, people bribed me into going to church (laughs) by making them read Harry Potter, I would then go into... That is so cheesy, but all right. Welcome to Oklahoma, (laughs) y'all. (laughs) Y'all. Question seven. (laughs) Quit laughing. I'm sorry, I can't. Question seven. How often do you read? Yeah. Um, In a week, how often do you read? Normally, I probably read every day. This week, I would say threw off that pace a little bit because we were watching garbage TV shows and... To de-stress, yeah. And and that helped me keep my sanity from work for the week, but like it put me under the gun to read a lot in the last 
48 hours. I would argue that you read five days a week. I think you're two days off from work, you never read. Well, or actually what ends up happening is one of your two days off you don't read, and then one of your first days back at work for the week you don't read. Like last week I read both days, but... During the week, really not. From time to time I do. I feel like I I lately have been a more of a morning person. So like when my alarm goes off at five or six o'clock in the morning, I'm already awake. So I'll usually just go out and sit down on the couch. I, you know, try to get the cat away from you so she doesn't wake you up. And then I, I read a little bit. So yeah. it's becoming more of a regular habit, which honestly, I don't mind it that much. It's kind of nice because then I don't have you being like, let's watch this TV show or let's watch YouTube. So it's kind of a good break. So I am your problem. Sometimes. I see. Not all the time, but sometimes. Well, for me, I do actually read every single day. Right. I never take a day off of reading. I think there have been some instances this year when I had to, like when I had to drive down to Oklahoma or up to Oklahoma for my mother's surgery. And there were some days when I couldn't get any reading in, stuff like that. But usually every day. Good. Question eight is a little on the darker side. Oh, okay. Well, here we go. If you could kill any fictional character, who would you kill? Uh, so right now, my hate is for two people, and it's Snape and Draco Malfoy. Okay. Because of what I read in the last book. I will say, Draco is kind of a child of circumstance. Like, he's in this situation for things that he really doesn't have a lot of control over. Yeah. He's been groomed since he was a child. And to be fair, he's still a child. Right. When these things are happening in book six. And I think the big thing for me would be to probably take out Draco because if Draco didn't exist at that point. They would have never got to Dumbledore, I feel like, as quickly. But I guess they probably still would have forced Snape to kill him anyways. So, like, I don't know. I feel like it would break up the timeline a little bit. Okay. So, here's the thing where I have to try really hard not to spoil things for you. Don't. So, you My employee almost ruined this for me, I have a feeling, this week. And I told him, no. You (laughs) have not gotten to a major thing and it's... It happens at the end of book seven. So, like, I have to hold on to this information until you get there, which is going to be, you have to, many weeks from now, get there. And I can't tell you. Yeah. So, have that theory. Okay. I'm going to say for this one, it's really difficult. And I had to think about, well, okay, who is bad enough that they deserve to die? (laughs) And so... I chose the neighbor in Lock Every Door. And if you haven't read that book, you might want to skip this section. Spoilers are coming. The neighbor in Lock Every Door is a guy named Nick. First of all, I've got bad history with guys named Nick. Second of all, (laughs) then he seduces the girl doing the apartment sitting in the apartment next to his. Then in the middle of the night, he steals her for organ transplant Okay. And he takes her bleeping kidney. And he's running this ring of just taking the apartment sitters and stealing their organs and then running that whole thing. And when he's going to get caught by the police, he jumps to his death off the top of the apartment building. So I think I would kill him before he killed himself. Yeah. That was a little dark. Question nine. Do you have a favorite children's book? 
Um, if so, what? So, growing up in San Diego, obviously, the, the home of Dr. Seuss, there were a lot of Dr. Seuss books as a kid, but, and it's probably why I like Harry Potter so much. I really like the fantasy style stories a little bit. I really liked The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe when I was a kid. I think that was probably the one I was addicted to most. My fourth grade teacher uh, gave me the first book as like a Christmas gift, and I immediately had my parents, after I read the first book, buy me the rest of the books. Oh, okay. Which is weird because that's not the way most people read it. They normally read it, what, like the second or third book first, and then the they go second. back and redo everything. So I I was starting out reading wrong from the get-go, I guess. You read The Magician's Nephew first. Yeah, and then worked my way through. Yeah. So when I was like 10, maybe, I read The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin, which was originally released in 1978. Okay. I was reading it in like 1999. And... It's about a bunch of people gathering together for the reading of a rich guy's will, and they all have to, like, play a game to get their part of his will. All right. And for some reason, it blew my mind when I was 10. I thought this was amazing and hilarious, and, like, at one point, they're playing a video of him at the will reading, and he would say, and now so-and-so, don't get angry because of blah, 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 and then, like, that person had been getting angry before he got to that part in the video so i thought it was so funny he could predict how people were gonna act yeah at his will reading and so like i was obsessed with this book when i was 10 and i think i actually read it before i read the first harry potter book and then harry potter took over at that point right and question 10 what is a book you are looking forward to reading at some point in the future that's tough so like i've had a lot of recommendations and, and what's crazy is it's mostly from book readers at work. And then obviously I have all the ones you recommended to me. So, and there's walls and walls of books around me everywhere. Well, I am pointing at my, what I call my favorites shelf. It's my bookcase that has all my favorite books on it. Right. And by all my favorite, I mean the ones that would fit on the shelf without breaking it. I don't know. I don't know there's one particular book that I'm like, man, I'm ready to read this. I think we should start keeping a list. Yeah. Of books for you to read. Yeah, I wouldn't mind recommendations. I think I ask for it every week, but, you know, none of them ever come through. So maybe this is the magic week that I get recommendations from listeners. Well, people recommend in real life. Yeah. A lot. For me, I said a lot of 2021 new releases are ones I'm looking forward to, but I said the one I'm specifically most excited for technically doesn't have a 2021 release date. It just said expected publication 2021. Okay. And it is the Inheritance Games series. So it's book two in the Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. It is to everyone's shock and awe about a girl inheriting money and the family throwing a fit at the will reading. What? No way. It's like I've read something like that before. And so it's also the book where I thought a side character was so much like me that sometimes I had to put down the book and walk away because it's just like, what is happening? It's too real. But that's the one I'm most excited for, and I'm hoping it sticks to a 2021 release date. But there's a little mystery happening at the end of book one that I want to get solved. Gotcha. As for what I've been reading, this past week I've read Dash and Lily's Book of Dares by Rachel Cohn and David Leviathan. It's backlist from 2010. I rated it three stars. It is about a girl named Lily, and... 
the fact that she puts a red notebook on a shelf in the strand and a guy picks it up and decides to start completing the dares inside of it. And they swap the book back and forth, dare each other to do different things. And I liked that whole premise and I only picked it up because it's being made into a Christmassy movie for Netflix. But I think I was right in that this is not specifically a me book, at least not for me as I am in 2020. Yeah. Because it was originally coming out when John Green was really big. And so, like, it's the same style of storytelling and absurdism just for the sake of absurdism in the parts of these characters. Yeah. And I really wanted to like this because it's so Christmassy, but all the Christmas stuff, all the dare stuff that I was enjoying in the first half of the novel just disappeared in the back half. And so, like, I knew they had to meet up at some point. Like, that's ridiculous to do all these dares and then never meet up and figure out who's who and what's happening. Yeah. But the lead up to that takes up, like, the back half, or not even half, but, like, a quarter of the book right in the middle. And it just takes away from everything else. Yeah. But I think it'll make a better movie than it did a book. And I don't know if it's the decade difference or if... It would always be that way. Yeah. Like, even if they made a movie in 2010 or whatever. Still a decent contemporary and Christmassy enough that if you're in the Christmas spirit, it's a good thing to pick up. And the second book I picked up for the week was Chasing Lucky by Jen Bennett. It's a new release from November of 2020. It technically hasn't come out yet, but I got it early. And I rated it 3.75 stars. It's a book set in a small New England town. It's about a girl and her mother who, for the past five years, have been moving from town to town and haven't really settled anywhere. They've lived in seven states in five years. and That's a lot. They decide to go back home to run the family bookstore because the one who had been is going on a, like, mission trip style vacation trip whatever right for a year and they want them to run the bookstore and in doing so they have to confront a lot of their past that they left behind when they left five years ago it's about how families can't communicate and the things we say and do to each other i thought it was pretty good i like i said gave it 3.75 stars it's not my favorite jen bennett My favorite is probably Starry Eyes, which came out, I think, a few years ago. Yeah. I really wish that they had published the book when it was slated to come out this summer because everything that happens in the book takes place in summer. So, like, it would have been much more fitting if you're, like, a seasonal reader, whereas reading it in November kind of uh, is a little weird. Yeah. For what I'm reading next, I'm reading The Court of Miracles by Kester Grant. It's technically a 2020 new release. It came out in June. And it's basically a Les Miserables retelling or like reworking where basically the people who tried to have the revolution have lost. And out from that spawned The Court of Miracles, which is these nine guilds of different types of criminals You have the assassins, the thieves, stuff like that. And a girl gets sold by her father into one of these criminal organizations. So the other one joins a different one to try to save her. 
Yeah. And that's the general synopsis. I don't like reading too far into synopses. It's gotten hit or miss reviews, so we'll see how I end up feeling about it. Right. And then the next one I'm going to read is King of Fools by Amanda Foodie. It is a backlist from 2019. It's the second book in the Shadow Game series. The series is about a girl who has been raised by her adoptive mother and her adoptive mother goes missing. And so she has to go to like the seedy underbelly of the city that she disappeared from to try to save her. And things unravel from there. Dun, dun, dun. And this is the second one in the series. So I didn't want to go into the synopsis for this book specifically because of that. Makes sense. But I'm looking forward to it. Like I literally feel like I just read that first book. And then I went ahead and bought the second because I want to read the whole series like right now. Yeah. As for what you've been reading, you read, what was it, a third of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows this week? Yeah, so a pretty big chunk of it. I'm through chapter 13 of it, which is about like 268 pages, I believe, somewhere well, in that room. Well, the book is like 760, so you're about a third of the way through. Um, the plan is to try to avoid allowing me to see things that I will see in the first movie of Deathly Hollows, like part one of the movie, so... So, basically, you don't want to read more than what will be in the movie? More or less. And I'm probably going to screw it up because I feel like there's really not a direct stopping point where the movie ends based on, like, the reviews I've been reading. I've been trying not to read that many reviews because I also don't want spoilers. So, right. like, I'm, like, more or less Googling very direct phrases of words to tell me where I'm supposed to be ending. Um, roughly where I ended this week was about where halfway between where they recommend stopping so that like, okay. the movie is timed accordingly. Which seemed a little crazy to me because I feel like if two-thirds of the book is half the movies, like, they had to either A, really stretch out what is in the last bit, or there's just so much crap going on in the last third of the book that it's just, like, fireworks and explosions and fight scenes and all these things going on. There is a third option that I can't tell you because you haven't gotten to this part yet, but there, there's a third option that is the real reason for why so much is happening page count wise in book one versus movie two. Yeah. I can't tell you because you haven't read there yet technically. But there's a lot going on. Uh, there were some scenes that I really, really, really was attached to and others that I really, really, really wasn't attached to. Um, they started you off in like a much darker form and I was kind of pre-warned by you and a couple other people that that's the way this was going to be in this book. Like, dark from the get-go and then, like, trying to give you some glimmers of hope through it. Well, and you have to realize that as the books have gone on, they've progressed to get a little darker and a little darker and a little darker. And this is the final book. Like, this is the darkest it's going to be. Right. So it's going to be bad. Hold on to your hat because here it goes. Well, I don't normally wear a hat when I'm reading, but I understand what you mean. Hold on to your pants. They'll stay pretty well attached. I appreciate <laughs> it, though. But with chapter one, obviously, you start off with, like, that really super dark scene with the meeting with Voldemort. And you have the random body just spinning around in circles like a rotisserie, more or less, is what I got from it. Like, it was just kind of, like, spin, spin, spin. I, don't, I didn't imagine it spinning like this. It just seemed to make more sense just to be, like, spinning like a, a hot dog on one of the cookers in a 7-Eleven, more or less, is, like, the way I kind of got the... But the poor hot dog was a lady that used to work at Hogwarts. Yeah, Charity Burbage. Yes. She used to teach uh, muggle studies. Yes. Which I knew was a class there, but like is very, very, very barely discussed in the book. 
Well, I don't think she's ever specifically mentioned until this one. Yeah, her name isn't. But, yeah. like, the class exists a yeah. couple times throughout it. But And you kind of have that discussion between... I, I actually thought it was funny that both Snape and, and Yaxley actually showed up at the same time. And they're arguing counterpoints to one another. Right. And I was like, that could have been written a little bit better. Like, you could have possibly had one of them there before the other to make him look like the good student. You know, instead of it just being the two of them both late to the meeting. Like, it just seemed weird. I mean, I don't know that it makes a difference. It, it would a little bit in the sense that maybe like Voldemort would be like, well, Snape was here on time, so clearly he cares more about this and he's probably more accurate about his information. But that could be just my manager brain going like... That is just your manager brain. I don't think Voldemort really cares all that much about how uh, on time you are. Right. Either way, so you have the two of them arguing their counterpoints and Snape's basically like, Yaxley, you're an idiot because obviously the ministry is being left out of the loop because of people like you putting imperious curses on people and they know that that's going to happen. So the order more or less is like staying hush-hush. Right. Yeah. And what they are telling him is just a load of BS, like moving Harry on his birthday. I felt like that was like, they're not going to do that, obviously. But obviously they are. Well, they didn't move him on his birthday. Did they not? No, they did it before the spell broke. So they say, who's read the book a million times and who has Look, not? this is the one I've read the least out of all the Harry Potter books. Well, that makes sense because it was the last book to be released. But exactly. Still, it's been at least double digits amount of times you've read it, I would imagine. I assume so, but... <laughs> Back to it a little bit. Voldemort more or less believes Snape and doesn't believe Yaxley. Like, Yaxley, you're getting fake information, like hashtag fake news. So that scene is... Weird. And at one point, Voldemort is undermining, like, all of Bellatrix and Narcissa's family line after Tonks gets married to Lupin. Mm -hmm. Which was weird that they gave you that information in the beginning and then later on you have to be, like, all shocked that it happens when uh, Lupin tells Harry about it. I was like, I've heard this thing already. The story has already happened. And then in chapter two, you get Harry waking up with it. Well, not waking up, but, like, Harry in his room and he's bleeding from his hand out of the blue because he's trying to empty his trunk out of stuff and the mirror is broken still in there so as he's going to go treat the wound from his stupidity of not actually looking inside of his box while grabbing things instead of just like what's in here let's see what this is like he's like picking out of it like he's trying to pick up prize by surprise for some reason he steps on a glass of tea that we end up finding out more than likely Dudley left out there for him as like a peace offering after all the crap he's put him through. And so Harry's basically doing like a spring cleaning of his room, which is kind of weird because you kind of get the understanding that everybody's leaving the house already at that point. So like the Dursleys are going to be leaving. He's going to be leaving. Who are you cleaning up for? I think he's just making sure he's got all of his crap. Yeah. But in the process of cleaning up his room, he's going through old copies of the Daily Prophet and stumbles upon a article that is written from an account of Elpheus Doge, right? Yes. About his relationship with Dumbledore. And boy, you learn some things about Dumbledore from that article. And shortly thereafter that, he finds another one written by Rita Skeeter talking about a book that he's going to be writing, or that she's going to be writing, about Dumbledore's life and how it wasn't always cracked up to be. A lot of it's fake, and it's just a bunch of nonsense, and... He actually went through a very dark period of his life that nobody knows about, you know, and all this stuff. And it's like, really, you're going to badmouth the most loved wizard in the world? Like, that's kind of jacked up, to say the least. I'm going to use other words, but, you know, we're a PG podcast. You wouldn't know it sometimes, but we are. We're here for you guys. So you kind of get the good and the bad of Dumbledore 
And Harry doesn't really know what to believe. He's like, it should be an easy decision, obviously, because Rita Skeeter is obviously a monster. Well, and she's known for her crap. Yeah. And at this point, Harry's more or less got everything packed that he wants to pack. And it becomes the day, the next day, where the Dursleys are supposed to be leaving. And they're going to be escorted by two of the members of the Order, the Delius Diggle and Hestia Jones. Yes. So... That's the thing that's happening, and I can only imagine as the Dursleys trying to be evacuated out by magic folks, they probably weren't, like, the most open to doing this. No, they're pretty much being forced. Yeah, but more or less as they're leaving, Dedalius Diggle is, like, offended that they're not even trying to say goodbye to Harry or anything like that, the Mm -hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley. Harry's like, it's okay, I'm more or less just a waste of space to them, and Dudley's like, listen here. And we're like, go Dudley, go Dudley, be the best of the three Dursleys for once. I mean, that's not hard. Yeah. It's a very low bar. He's like, Harry's not a waste of space, he saved my life, Yeah, you know? And if it wasn't for him, you know, I would be dead, or without a soul. He thought he would be dead, obviously, but like, without his soul, Yeah, as we know it. Which I thought was awesome. Like, that was a great little scene. I was super proud of him. And then they drive off in a car. And then, as I understand it from the book at least, they just disappear out of the car and the car is still there, more or less? No. Or do they make the whole car disappear? No. None of that. Oh, okay. They drive off in a car. Okay. Well, then my mistake. But later on in the day, the Harry's escort party arrives. And when I say escort party, I mean like, everybody Harry knows, more or less, is starting to reappear in his backyard. Well, a lot of them at least. So you have Hagrid, Ron, Hermione, Mad-Eye Moody, Fred, George, Bill, Shackle, Bolt, Mundugas, Fletcher, Remus Lupin, and Tonks. Did you say Fleur? And Fleur. I missed Fleur. All the people showing up. They did this because travel plans had to change because they found out that Voldemort has spies within the Ministry of Magic's travel department. Magical travel department. And they don't want him to try to escape in those manners because obviously they're being watched. Yeah. So the new plan is to have basically a bunch of fake Harrys running around at once via Polyjuice Potion and being escorted individually with one other member of the Order to cause confusion of what they imagined was like two or three Death Eaters maybe watching what was going on. Yeah. Obviously they were a little incorrect about that information and all hell breaks loose because everybody and their mom of Death Eaters is basically floating above waiting. And they're all being chased by different individual groups. In the crossfire, sadly, um, Hedwig is killed, which... Most unnecessary death in all of Harry Potter. I was waiting for that because you've said it every time I've mentioned it. It's the most unnecessary death in all of Harry Potter. I understand you have to have consequences and like bad things have to happen because otherwise it's not worth the paper it's written on, but still. Right. And then you have, obviously, the chasing continue to break down. Hagrid hits the turbo on his motorcycle. Yeah. And you lose the sidecar. So at this point, Harry's just hanging off the back of Hagrid, shooting spells backwards at the the Death Eaters that are chasing him. And then Stan, is it Shunpike? Is that correct? Yes. Look at me. I don't even have that in my notes. I remembered. Is one of the Death Eaters that appears. And Harry's like, hey, I thought he wasn't one. And it's like, why are you arguing with yourself? There's a chance he's under the Imperius curse. Just keep shooting back. And he uses Expelliarmus on him instead of using an actual defensive spell, more so than anything. And immediately the other Death Eater that's traveling with Stan is like, all right, well, we're going to poof for a little bit here because we got to go communicate back to Voldemort that we now know which Harry's the real Harry because Harry doesn't want to hurt somebody he knows. 
Well, on top of that, he's known for using that spell. Yeah. And as they're approaching their their destination, Voldemort appears and all hell breaks loose in every direction, more or less, to the point where Hagrid is knocked off the motorcycle and Harry's having to handle this magic vehicle he's never operated once in his life in a straight nosedive towards the earth. It ends up that everything kind of crash lands. Hagrid somehow is alive and safe. Harry's alive and safe, and they wake up in Tonks' parents' house. So that's a thing that happens. They're not there for very long in that chapter. It's more or less like, do you know if Tonks is okay? And it's like, no, clearly she's not with us. Like, how would we know this? But Harry promises to send word that she was okay as soon as he found out. Yeah. So they get to to the port key to get to the burrow. And they arrive and Miss Weasley's like, nobody else has made it here yet. What the hell is going on? There were supposed to be people already arriving. Yeah. And in the order that they arrive after that, Lupin and George Weasley arrive next. George is bleeding very profusely and has lost his ear as reported because of Snape using the Sectum Spectra. Sectum Sempra. Sectum Sempra. I was so close. Didn't have that in my notes either. On him, Lupin's able to more or less stop the bleeding, and now George is going to have to live without an ear because it can't be attached due to dark arts magic. Yeah. kind of stops things like that from happening. The next to arrive is Kingsley and Hermione, then Mr. Weasley and Fred, shortly followed by Tonks and Ron. And the last to arrive was Bill and Fleur. Uh, they reported that they saw Mundungus ditch Mad-Eye Moody while Voldemort was in chase right off the bat when they came through. And that more than likely Mad-Eye Moody is dead. Well, and they would have assumed that the real Harry is going to be with the most, what they consider dangerous. or dangerous, yeah. Or out of everyone. So they assumed that, of course, he'd be with Mad-Eye. And then Mundungus fled. Like a sissy. Yeah. What else is new? Mundungus is a freaking fraidy cat. Like, why... A, why'd you ever let him into the order? Like, I don't get it. Well, it's like Sirius says in book five, they like to keep him around because he has his ear to the ground in the criminal world. So yeah. that's how they get a lot of their information. Yeah. I wouldn't have paired him with Mad-Eye because I think Mad-Eye would have been the one that gets attacked most heavily. I would have stuck him with someone like Bill, maybe, where I think Bill could still handle crap, but I feel like Mundungus wouldn't have been so afraid because they wouldn't have come after him as hard. Yeah. But who knows? And at the end of the chapter, you get Harry having one of his flashback moments or flash to current moments with Voldemort. I guess that's better, better description of it. Of him torturing Ollivander, trying to figure out why his wand still wouldn't harm Harry or why Lucius's wand wouldn't harm Harry, I should clarify. Why a wand that he borrowed was still acting like his own wand. Right. And here you get to start to delve deeper into wand lore, which is something that I love. And we learn more as the book goes on. And it makes my heart happy. And in chapter six, Miss Weasley's kind of on to the trio. Like they're planning to do something. Let's keep them separated and busy. Yeah. Everybody stays away from one another. And at one point, Harry, Ron, and Hermione finally find time because Miss Weasley gives Hermione a chore that she's already done. Yeah. The other one is for Harry and Ron to clean up Ron's room, which really isn't that bad for the two of them to have to deal with together. At that point, Harry, Ron, and Hermione start playing catch-up as to what they've been doing, what they've been studying during this time while Harry was gone. Hermione basically has put her parents 
under an enchantment to change their names and forget they had a daughter. And she also planted the idea of having them want to move to Australia, which is a pretty intense that bit is, of magic. That is some creepy high level of magic that, like, everyone knew you were smart, but dang. Yeah, like, we didn't expect that to be what was going on, that's for sure. Yeah. And then... Ron has it put a spell on the household ghoul and give him a set of his pajamas. This is hilarious. He I enchanted love this. him though to have red hair and pustules. So it looks like he has what spattergoit? Spattergoit. It's got an R in there. Alright. But yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. It is. It's hilarious. Yeah. And then Hermione had taken the book about Horcruxes out of Dumbledore's office after Dumbledore passed away. Yeah. Which was slick. Again, showing Hermione beyond her days of knowledge. Well, she's also thinking ahead. Yeah. Even as they're at school and dealing with the shock of losing Dumbledore, she's like, better go get this book. Yeah. She's found out, though, that, like, it's going to require some really strong dark magic to break these Horcruxes. I wouldn't say dark magic. It's just really strong Strong magic. magic. Yeah. So that's what I have for that chapter. Okay. I'm trying not to go into all the little details because there's a lot of stuff that's, like, I've noticed this about the way she writes, that, like, it's cool for world building but not really necessary for the plot yeah yeah one of those things the next day harry wakes up having a vivid dream look while he's looking for a guy by the name of grigorovich i had to say that about five or six times to get that right so that that was a fun name uh ron basically wakes him up telling him that he's sleep talking again and harry immediately is like don't tell hermione don't do it it's not a good thing and then they he gets a, his gift from Ron because it's his birthday that day. And he's given a book titled 12 Failsafe Ways to Charm Witches. Mm-hmm. Which is basically a, this is how you get along with women book. More or less, right? Like, I feel like that's what it is to a He's trying to pick up ladies. Yeah. How to pick up the ladies. I don't think that Harry necessarily needed that book from Ron. but He's already picked up his lady, as we know. And dropped her off. Yeah. Goodbye. With a babysitter, more or less. But they go downstairs for breakfast, and Miss Weasley's there, like, going, I'm so sorry Mr. Weasley had to go off to work early. It's just going to be us. So Mr. and Mrs. Weasley had given Harry a watch similar to Ron's. It was a hand-me-down, though. It was from somebody else in the family that didn't yeah. take very good care of it. It's, like, scratched and dinged and that Was kind of it stuff. her brother? Something like that. Someone, yeah. yeah. And Hermione had replaced Harry's broken sneakoscope. It's, like, the dark magic detector, right? Yes. Yeah. And then you have Bill and Fleur got Harry an enchanted razor, which Mr. Delacour basically was like, be careful with that. (laughs) Like, if you don't tell exactly what you want, you're going to end up with a really nasty set of cuts. Then gave their gift, which was just some chocolates. Well, they don't really know him, and he's technically not part of the family that they're marrying into. Yeah. So it makes sense. Yeah. And then Fred and George put together a smorgasbord package of things from their store, which I think was perfect for Harry because... He's going to need some of those things. Right. Hermione, after breakfast, offers to carry all his stuff back up to the to Ron at Ron's room and Harry's room that they're sharing. On the way back up, Ginny's like, hey, sweet thing. <laughs> Obviously not quite like that. That's exactly what she said, yeah. actually. No. Um, that accent and everything. Basically, Ginny was like, well, I've got your gift in my room. It's like right here. Did you want to come in? And Harry's like, well, I've never been in a girl's room before. So, all right, sure. And he's, like, looking around the room, like, trying to make small talk, like, not to make this awkward that they just kind of broke up-ish. And Ginny's like, well, 
the gift I'm going to give you is something that will help you remember me by. And then plants a big old makeout session on Harry. Goodness. And Harry's like, brown chicka, brown cow. Exactly. Yep. In the process of it, they're interrupted by Ron coming back down to like see what Jenny got him as a gift. And boy, did he ever see what Jenny got him as a gift. And he is irate with Harry about the gift. Well, I mean, technically he should be yelling at his sister. I agree with you, and I was a little bothered that Harry had to apologize about this because she's the one that planted the kiss on him, albeit he clearly was okay with the kiss because he continued to kiss. But I think Ron is more worried about her feelings getting hurt because well, of everything. it's very much clear that that's what he's bothered by. So, yeah, I don't think he necessarily cares so much that they were kissing, but that they were kissing without it really being a relationship. Yeah, that they were kissing and they didn't want Ginny to get kind of her hopes up, more or less. Mm-hmm. Because Ron realizes, like, the risk of what they're going to be doing. That there's a chance that they don't come back from this. Yeah. Like, this is the adventure of adventures. And, like, you don't want Ginny to be heartbroken any more than she already would be if Harry passed away. Right. But Harry's birthday dinner is interrupted by Rufus Scrimgeour with Dumbledore's will. This dude just pops up at the worst times. Maybe he plans it that way. I'm starting to wonder, honestly. So he's got the things that Dumbledore's given, the three of them, and he originally wants to do it individually, like to grill them, clearly. Yeah. And Hermione's like, no, I think we can do this all together. And Harry's like, I agree. And Ron's like, I third that. Like, no. None of none of your bologna sandwich is going to be enjoyed here. We're going to go through this, okay? Together. And so Ron gets his first. It's the Deluminator, which you see obviously in book one. And I love that as a gift for Ron because I feel like that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Scrimgeour was like, well, why is he giving it to you? I'm sure he had better students that he was like more friendly with. And Ron's like, hey, I, I resent that crap. You know, yeah. like I didn't have a great relationship with him, but I still had a relationship with him nonetheless. And then Hermione receives a copy of the Tales of the Beetle the Bard. The Tales of Beetle the Bard. Yep. When I typed this, it took me about three tries because my brain tried to put letters where they didn't belong, which supposedly is like kids' stories, right? Yes. Like, is what I'm getting from it. It's like a set of fairy tales. Interesting. And then Harry receives the first golden snitch he ever caught and was supposed to also receive the sword of Godric Gryffindor, but Rufus Scrimgeour and the Ministry of Magic is like, nah, bro, you ain't getting the sword, especially one that has historical value. Right, and it wasn't his to give, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and when he's handing over the snitch, Scrimgeour knows kind of the secret behind the snitch. It, it's There's some lore behind the snitch based on what I'm getting as well. Well, it's not necessarily that. It's that snitches have flesh memories, so you can tell who caught the snitch first in a match. Yeah. Are they only used once ever? Yes. Ah, interesting. And so Harry's sitting there like, well, I touched it and nothing happened. And he's like, oh. We have to figure this out. And so Hermione, Ron, and Harry dismiss themselves at a certain point from Rufus's nonsense and go upstairs. And Harry's like, well, how are we going to get this open? Like, we got to figure out, like, what it is and, like, get an answer and all this nonsense. What are you shaking your head? He said that he wasn't going to actually try in front of him because he didn't catch it with his hand last time. He caught it with his mouth. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, you need to put it in your mouth then. At that point, he pulls it out and is like, well, clearly nothing's changed. And then he notices that it says, I open at the close engraved on it. Yeah. So you have that mystery from Dumbledore. Like, what What does this this even mean? 
And that pretty much wraps up that scene because it's just like, they're like, well, we're going to have to figure out what this means and why we got this and why Ron got this. And they're all trying to figure it out. And, you know, Ron's playing with the de-illuminator while all this crap is going on. And Hermione's trying to figure out why she got this children's book full of stuff. And so when they go to sleep, Ron uses the de-illuminator to turn off the lights. And that's the end of the night. I would love to own a de-illuminator. Because you're lazy? I think it's cool. It's kind of like having hue lights in the house. Yeah. Yeah. The next day is the wedding. They force Harry to take Polyjuice Potion to look like a random kid from the neighborhood who could be a Weasley. Yeah, red hair. Yeah, for his own safety, just because there's so many people that aren't part of the order coming in to this wedding. And Harry, Ron, and the twins are like escorting people from the road to the wedding site itself. Which is like really outdone and bougie. Like they have a nice tent for the wedding service and all these things and gold shimmerings from the ceilings. Harry greets the Lovegoods and Luna more or less immediately notices based off the mannerisms of Harry. I think this is hilarious. I love Luna. Yeah. That Harry is obviously Harry just disguised as somebody else. And Luna's dad is completely oblivious to everything. He's just happy to be at the wedding more or less. Like we should wear bright colors because it's a wedding. Why is everybody wearing these dark fancy dress robes like yeah should be wearing yellows and reds and oranges and all sorts of crap like that on a tangent and i'm like that's totally luna's dad yeah like it fits the bill 100 percent. and he's wearing like this really fancy gold necklace with like a triangle and an eye in the middle is that my grasp of what that symbol is that is your understanding of it yeah later on you find after the wedding that victor crumb was also an attendee there, sits down next to Harry, disguised as the redhead ginger, doesn't realize that it's Harry. Yeah. And starts talking about, like, this guy. He goes, do you know him? And he's like, well, yeah, I brought him in and greeted him. And, like, I know Luna because Luna goes to school with these people that I know. Yeah. And Crumb just starts going off about how this symbol that his, or that Luna's father is wearing is that of Grindelwald, who literally was more or less the Voldemort of the continent of Europe at some point or another is like my comparison of it, I guess. In the 1940s, I think it was. Yeah. And then he would leave his symbols all over the place after killing people and causing heck. And it's a symbol that's up in Durmstrang and like he doesn't like it. His family was affected by Grindelwald. Yeah. It's, It's a hot mess. And at a certain point, Victor Crumb kind of storms off after that conversation. Yeah. Then Harry's like, well, now I'm here by myself. I guess I'll go look somewhere else to go do something. And then sees who he thinks is Elvius Doge from across the room. It is. And I'm getting to it. He goes and sits down and realizes it is Elvius Doge. Jesus. And starts talking to him about Dumbledore and like told him how much he appreciates what he had written in the Daily Prophet and all that stuff. And kind of starts going down reminiscing. And he starts asking him the questions that Rita Skeeter was talking about in her stuff on her article right and he's like listen none of that stuff's true it's all a bunch of hogwash i feel like that's a good word for the harry potter world yeah then aunt muriel comes down and sits down next to him and like oh you must be a weasley like blah 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 you're red hair and whatnot and just starts asking what they're talking about and they're talking about dumbledore and so she's like well she seems the one that's on the rita skeeter train and is like well this person i know also said these things and like all this nonsense and i believe the one she was quoting i've got it here somewhere was bathilda bagshot knowledge of that stuff um while that ugly conversation is going on kingsley shacklebolt's patronus shows up to warn everybody that the minister is dead and the ministry has fallen which 
was weird for me later on reading because I'm like, my imagining of Fallen is like, they're killing everybody in the ministry and it's on a blaze. Well, it's been taken over. Yeah. And after that happens, Death Eaters start apparating into the wedding because the defenses that were put up by the ministry are clearly no longer good. Yeah. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione apparate to Tottenham Court Road in London in order to get away from the wedding. At that point, this is my, as I was explaining to you earlier, my favorite scene, Hermione drops the mic about how dang smart she is and how prepared she is for literally anything. Right. She has this bag that she's enchanted that's like, I imagine about like roughly this size. And I'm using my hands to measure here. Maybe About like, the size of a paperback novel. Yeah, roughly. And she's pulling out all these things like changes of clothes and like this and that over and over again. And um, It's a Mary Poppins bag. That's kind of what I described it as. I also used the words TARDIS effect. To it a little it's bit. bigger on the inside yeah yeah almost to like an unlimited endless storage is what i put it as it seems and so they hop into a cafe and just kind of like try to grasp and like come to all the crap that's just happened around them and start discussing these things and to what looks like just normal working people come into the cafe and sit directly behind them and they realize very shortly after that they recognize one of those two people as one of the Death Eaters from an earlier on experience with Death Eaters. And then a fight ensues Yeah. in the cafe. And they don't know that Harry's there, obviously, until after he uses a spell. And then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, Harry's here right now. Um, and so Hermione ends up having to save him by using uh, the petrification spell on the last one. And they basically wipe everybody's memories because they realize that, like, if anybody remembers the crap that went down here and they clean up the cafe. So, like, they don't remember that they actually saw Harry. Yeah. That was the goal of it all anyways. And after that, they apparate to 12 Grimald Place to basically hide because they're like, this is the only place that probably still has active spells over it, like protections. Yeah. So they poof after that point that location and when they arrive inside the defensive spells that were placed on it to kind of slow Snape down appears and you hear somebody talking in the background like Severus and Harry's like this is really weird like what's going on then they realize that it's just a defensive mechanism to kind of stop Snape from coming into the house or at least delaying him enough for people to escape if he's bringing other people other than himself into the actual house. Um, but they also notice that the house is literally in shambles, like somebody's been tearing through it to steal stuff. Well, you know Mundungus has been there stealing stuff. Yeah, but they're hoping that's all that it was. Right. Yeah. And then Mr. Weasley's Patronus arrives at a certain point and tells Ron, Hermione, and Harry that everyone in the family made it out safe. I couldn't fathom even being an hour not knowing that everybody was good after that. Yeah, that'd be hard. Yeah. But Hermione's like, of course they were. They had all those members of the order there. And it's like, okay, that doesn't mean that everybody's safe. Right. It's good that they were there. That probably helped save a lot of people. But at the same time, it's like, not necessarily. But the next morning, Harry wakes up a little earlier than everybody else and kind of starts exploring the house and stumbles upon Sirius's room and finds it's also a complete mess, just like the rest of the house. Right. And he finds a letter... partial portion of his letter uh, from his mom to Sirius thanking him for Harry's first broomstick as a gift. Yeah. I would not be thanking him as a parent, but yeah. 
I feel like it's when your brother and sister have their first kid, we'll buy them like Nerf guns and it'll be like, why did you do this? <laughs> to the same level of just catastrophe that could occur. But Harry realizes he basically needs to go to Godric's Hollow to meet Bathilda Bagshot because she's mentioned in the letter as well. And it's like this lady's name just keeps coming up. Like they, they know my family. They know Dumbledore well. Like there's got to be something this woman can give us information wise. Well, she is the historian who wrote their history textbook. Yeah. So you would hope she would know people and stuff. Yeah. Hermione comes busting into the room, like literally in a panic because they woke up and he just was not there. Yeah. And she shouts back to Ron, like, I found him. He's okay. And Ron comes up and he's just like, (sighs) panting, like just exhausted from running through the lower portions of the house. Harry's basically explaining his plan, like, hey, we need to go find this person. And she's like, listen, that's not the most important thing. Like, right now we need to find the Horcruxes. We can find out about your family and Dumbledore later. Like, it's not priority number one. So Hermione got him more or less back on track, needing to hunt down the Horcruxes as the priority. While they're exploring the rest of the house, they come to the realization who R.A.B. is finally. Yeah. Being Sirius's brother, Regulus Arcturus Black. Yes. I know Arcturus from a video game from years ago that I used to play, but the Regulus was a tough one for me. And I don't know why. It should have been really easy. Well, his name was said multiple times in book six and book five and movie six and movie five. Yeah. It shouldn't have been that complicated, to say the least. When we were watching the sixth movie, every time they mentioned Regulus, I'm like, oh God, oh God, don't give it away. But they didn't, so... Because you had finished the book before you watched the movie, so I was worried you were going to connect dots. Yeah, I didn't, so congratulations. But while they were looking through his room, they find nothing, but Hermione remembers seeing a locket when they were cleaning up the house the last time they were all there together. Um, They summon Creature because they believe he may know about the locket since he was collecting heirlooms through the whole house during that time as well. After asking Creature a number of questions to try to get to the answer, they found out that uh, Mundungus stole it along with all the other things that he stole from the house. Harry ends up requesting to know everything he knows about the locket, Creature's mistreatment by Voldemort, and how much he ended up respecting Regulus kind of comes out of that. With I this... always thought that that was interesting, the whole Crutcher Creature side of things. Because it's like, you don't expect that out of the house elf you meet in book five. Yeah. And and you kind of understand why he is the way he is, too. Because, like, he was literally tortured by Voldemort by drinking that poison. So, like, it's crazy to me. And, and at that point, like, he realized that Regulus was, like, kind of already fishy about Voldemort a little bit. But then when he found out that Voldemort was back and Creature was not, that clearly... Creature was in some kind of trouble and, like, requested him to come back to the house and save Creature's life from the Inferi. I think it also speaks to how stuck in servitude house elves are because of how their magic works. Because Harry and Ron and Hermione are asking him, well, how did you get back? And he's like, I was ordered to come back. I didn't have a choice. And that was how he managed to get out of the Lake of Inferi was magic like he was magically forced out of it because he was ordered to come back right so in turn now knowing that Mundugus stole the locket and like he's talking to creature and he goes so would you be able to find him and bring him back here and he goes yeah i obviously could do that like that's not an issue like if that's an order i'm gonna do it he gives creature the replacement locket and basically goes i'm sure regulus would have wanted you to have this yeah and that was like the first time you really saw 
anybody treating creature as like a human more or less like at least shy of like the way regulus has been treating him right way back in the history of it so i was like good finally starting to be a little human with creature you know in chapter 11 it's a lot of hanging around the house watching the people outside the house watching the non-existent house they can't see right yeah. and then you also as i put it in here lupin scenes because that was i know you had thoughts about them Ugh, like i don't like the fact that harry treated lupin the way he did i think he could have handled it better but at the same time i don't like the way lupin is treating tonks and the fact that tonks we now know is pregnant with baby wizards or witches well and like i hear you saying that he should have handled the confrontation with lupin better this is still a newly 17 year old child yeah like he has only been 17 for a couple of weeks at the most and like he should not be responsible for making sure a father stays with his family yeah i think he did the right thing i I'll be honest, at first I was excited by the idea of having Lupin tag along. Like, I was like, these adventures are going to be great. A real adult. Right. But at the same time, I'm like, no, that's the wrong thing. He should be at home taking care of his wife and future children. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of, I was conflicted with that chapter a lot because of that. Also, at the end of the chapter, you end up having Creature reappear with Mundungus. And the questioning begins of Mundungus. Yeah. And I love the bit where basically Creature grabs the saucepan and is like going to go hit Mundungus. Mundungus is like, hey, hey, don't, don't let him do that. Don't sick your bleeding house elf on me. Yeah. And uh, then Harry's like, you got one shot. Enjoy it. And just freaking clobbers Mundungus. I... If that scene isn't in the movie, I'm going to be upset. It's probably not because, you know, Harry Potter movies like to take the joy away from me. But eventually, after a little bit of threats and torture, Mundungus Fletcher tells him he was trying to sell the locket in Diagon Alley. And while he was there, somebody roughly looking like um, uh, Dolores Umbridge basically confiscates it from him. Now they know what their mission is to find that Horcrux, obviously. Right. At the beginning of chapter 12, you find out that two Death Eaters are named to the teaching group at Hogwarts, and Snape is made headmaster. I remember you kind of put the book down for as a second. As soon as I saw it, I was like, no, this cannot be what is happening. No. You said to me, he just killed the last headmaster. How is he the headmaster? I'm like, because the people running the school, yeah. the people who are running the ministry. Are now Voldemort peoples. Yes. Yeah. And then Hermione realizes after hearing that immediately, like, there's a painting in here that has access to Hogwarts who would also not be that turned away from helping Snape. Being Phineas Nigellus. Phineas Nigellus Black. Yeah. A previous headmaster of Hogwarts. Yeah. Who was used in book five. So she grabs the painting and pushes it into her magic bag so that he can't see any of the things or hear any of the things that are going on. Smart. Yeah. Again, Hermione being smart. Now you understand why 13-year-old me would have dated... 13-year-old Hermione. Yeah. So basically at that point, Harry, Ron, and Hermione start taking turns stalking members of the Ministry of Magic, looking for a way to get into the Ministry and how to get in there now because obviously things are going to change to keep what's in there now protected from, you know, the Order and whatnot because they don't want easy access. Yeah. And they obviously can't go down the guest entrance. It kind of wouldn't work. Yeah. Harry ends up having another vision of Voldemort's attempted hunt of... Grigorovich, and he kills a woman and her kids because they don't know where he is or who he is. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. 
I was so mad. I'm like, Voldemort's a dick, but now he's real, real dick. So murdering people is okay as long as it's for a reason. If it's for a good reason, not for a bad reason. Um, now I know how your moral compass works. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. We learn things about each other. <laughs> but they finally figure out how they get in, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione assume the shape of three different employees by three different methods, more or less. Hermione ends up becoming Mafalda Hopkirk. Ron is a support services employee by the name of Cattermole. Reg Cattermole, I believe, is yeah. that his name. And then you have Harry, who becomes a wizard named Runcorn. Yes. Who is feared, as it's stated in my notes, by most wizards, as I learned as I read along. Yeah. At the time, Harry has no idea that he's, like, this big shot. Yeah, it's just some guy. And as soon as they get in, the group is split up because Yaxley's office is raining. Yes. Which I thought was weird. The people doing the weather for the offices. Are in, like, boycotting quality control. (laughs) So... In the elevator, he runs into Ron and Hermione and Harry, new peoples, and he asks Ron to go up there and basically fix his office while he's interrogating his wife, Ron's person's wife. Yeah. This is where it got very weird. It is very complicated to discuss. Cattermole's wife is down in the dungeons on level nine getting interviewed for being muggle-born. And then as they're going up, I wrote in my notes, the Ministry Chaos really begins. They get up to level one, and Umbridge takes Hermione, or Hopkirk, with her to take notes to these meetings that they're headed towards. Yeah. And then Harry's person gets off the elevator and then runs into the new Minister of Magic. It's like thick something, right? Pious thick... Pious thickness. Thickness. He's not down with the sickness, he's down with the thickness. And basically confronts Harry, like, what are you doing on this floor? And he goes, I'm looking for Mr. Weasley. And he goes, oh, is Arthur under investigation for this? That's great. And Harry's like, nope, 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 one second. That's not what I said. Yeah. Like, back it up. Because obviously Pius is under Imperius curse still. We shouldn't be shocked that all of a sudden he has the interest in busting one of the Weasleys. Yeah. And in order to get into Umbridge's office, because he eventually finds it as he's walking along, watching all these people fill out these pamphlets, uh, he has to use one of the distraction detonators. So The like, decoy detonators. Decoy detonators. I knew it was something with a D, and I, it was going to drive me crazy. And it rolls away and causes a plume of smoke and a small explosion. And that's how he enters into the office. And while he's outside, he recognizes Moody's eye in the door. So he removes that the second he gets in. Like, I'm not leaving any of Moody here with this crazy lunatic. Like, I just No, I mean, that kind of gives him away in the end. To an extent, yeah, you would think. If that does, I don't know that yet. So there's that. But while he's in there, he finds a file with Mr. Weasley's name on it and finds out that the ministry is following the Weasleys and Mr. Weasley everywhere they go and tracking them, basically, because of their knowing of the undesirable number one. And Harry's like, who the heck's undesirable number one? It's Harry! And then he sees on a poster off to the other side on the wall that he is the undesirable number one. And then after that, Harry leaves the room and starts working his way back downstairs to kind of reunite with everybody. And he finally, as he's going down the lift, runs into to Ron. And Ron's like, well, uh, I'm soaking wet and I've achieved nothing, more or less. <laughs> It's still going crazy. And then Mr. Weasley and another 
Wizard get on the elevator as well. Mr. Weasley makes a recommendation to Ron how to fix the problem. It's like, oh, it's been happening everywhere. And then the other wizard gets off the next floor and Mr. Weasley turns to Harry's character and just starts scolding him. Yeah. Like, how could you do this to this person and his family and blah, 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 like on and off. And like, Harry's like, I'm not this person. You're like, you're shouting at the wrong guy right now. And... Harry basically tells him, your whole family's being watched. And then Mr. Weasley's like, is that a threat like type of response? And I'm like, not the time, man. If that's really the dude you think it is, probably not the place to be tough in a closed elevator where there's two people and it's you and that other person. Like, But Harry gets down to the courtrooms is the way I describe it because it's just a bunch of hearing rooms basically yeah and he turns the corner and he's like it's it's really cold right and he goes there's only one thing that can cause that and he turns the corner and there's just dementors going up and down the aisle holding basically everybody that's being interviewed hostage and they get in he basically ends up sneaking in with Catermole's wife who's going in for her interview and he's underneath the invisible invisibility cloak the whole time obviously at that point yeah he basically sneaks into the hearing and gets up behind Hermione's person, Hopkirk, Umbridge, and Yaxley, who are doing this interview process. She starts bad-mouthing, like, Umbridge starts bad-mouthing half-bloods and mud-bloods and all these things and going off and off and off on this nonsense. And Yaxley is doing more or less the same thing. And Harry's like, how do I let Hermione know I'm here without scaring the bejesus out of her? And he whispers, like, Hermione, it's me. And she still kind of jumps a little bit, but not enough for the two of them who are on these tangents about like just hating mixed blood people on this tangent that they don't even notice. At a certain point, Yaxley says something that triggers Harry. And Harry's just like, I'm done with this crap. Like it goes back to Harry's like super short fuse with like confrontation and certain things being said. Like he just loses his cool really quick and uses stupefy on, I think it's Umbridge first and then Yaxley second. At that point, the Dementors in the actual courtroom are like, cool, the people that are keeping us in check aren't keeping us in check anymore. We're going to do our thing now. Free for all. And they start trying to use the kiss on Catermole's wife. Harry's like, Ain't no thing but a chicken wang. He's going to freaking use his Patronus and defend her and saves her. And in the process of doing that, doesn't realize that Hermione's back there trying to like pick up the locket off of Umbridge because she notices it hanging from her. The Dementors are like, well, if you're going to defend her, we're going to go after Hermione. And so Harry's like, round two sends the stag after those to protect the two of them. And he's like, listen... There's all sorts of Dementors outside of this hallway. I'm going to need you, your Patronus, to work, like, right now. Hermione, like, I need it no matter what. And she's like, well, that was, like, the worst thing I was magic-wise. Which, to me, is, like, Hermione bad at anything? What the hell? That makes no sense. But, like, I guess you can't be perfect at everything. You really can't. Yeah. And so Hermione and him both use their Patronus to get all the people that are in the possibility of being questioned to escape, like, the downstairs area of the courtrooms. They're all in the elevators on their way up, and in the process, they're obviously when, like, magic's being used in the courtroom illegally, there's some type of alarm of some sort because they're trying to close up all the fireplaces to get out of the actual main hall. Right. And, and, um, the lobby. Now that, at this point, Harry knows that, like, his person is of power to be able to just walk around and do whatever the hell he wants, he basically tells off the people that are trying to close it off, like, I've been asked by the minister to escort these people out. They've been cleared of their blood 
traded your issues or whatever, like more or less. The guy is, starts to believe him, and then Yaxley comes out of the elevator shortly thereafter, after like Ron gets out of the elevator itself. He's just like forcing people like, go, 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 get through the fireplace as quickly as you can. They're about to close the last one, and Harry decks the guy that's trying to close them, and the three of them get through just in time uh, as it's cl- like they're getting ready to close it. And so you see them all get out of the toilets that they're transported through, which is weird to me that toilets are the transportation method into the ministry, but whatever. Well, it really did go into the toilet after they killed Scrimgeour. I also thought that immediately after I saw that that was the way to get in. So, yeah. But they're about to apparate back to 12 Grimmauld Place, and that's where they leave you at the end of that chapter on that cliffhanger. It felt so much like a seasoned TV show leaving you on the most BS cliffhanger you could possibly be on. And I was like, it's 11 o'clock. I need to stop reading. I need to go to bed. That was also the end, end of, of your... where I was supposed to be reading. And I'm like, I could not have chosen a worse place to end. Like, I was so mad at myself. Well, and you told me how far you were reading. I just went, yep. That's a thing. Yeah, you're like, that that's, is your that's choice. a choice. Yeah. Because I don't tell you how much to read. You don't. In any given week. You, I let you, you pick. Do. Yeah. So. You let me suffer through my consequences. You have tonight to start reading to figure out what happened from here. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely, um, I'm ready to read the next chapter to say the least. And after we have some lunch, I will probably do that. Yeah. But yeah, there's that. That was my reading for the week, guys, and I'm nervous and anxiously awaiting to read the next chapter, so I don't even know that sports will distract me from this today, so... That's good. That's what we're trying to do, convert you. Yeah, slowly but surely. I don't know if where you're planning to stop next is a great stopping point either. We have to figure that out still. The plan is to read about another 250 pages, roughly. Yeah. And that'll take you to two thirds of the way through the book, but it'll only get you through movie one. And there is a reason for it. I can't explain it to you. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah. I'm excited to continue reading, which it seems like Harry Potter's for the most part kept me on my toes. I think there's only been once or twice where I'm like, meh. Yeah. Um, that was mostly book two for you, I feel like. Yeah. And I'm not sold on this book so far. I feel like there's a lot of stuff for even some weird plot building points still that are going on. And I know that you've told me in the last three books, I need to really, really, really pay attention to what's going on because things that seem like nothing are important. That is true. I have been trying to focus my best on those things. And if there's something where I'm like, oh, this probably could be important. I'm rereading it at least two or three times just to make sure that I it's like saved in the brain. See what I think is really funny. And I can't tell anymore with how much I've read the series, but even knowing that you need to pay attention doesn't put you on your guard enough, I feel like, right. in order for things to not surprise you later on. Got it. But I do want you to have the full experience either way. I'm not trying to get you to, like, connect all the dots. Right. But this is a much longer episode than our normal episode, so hope that's okay with you guys. Hopefully you'll stick around and listen. If it's not, well, I mean, too late at this point. <laughs> But make sure you check out all the social media, which should be linked in the show notes. And remember, we are taking the week of Thanksgiving off, so we have one more episode of books before that happens. So enjoy it while you got it. We'll probably be active on social media that week still, I would imagine. Just Well, I'll have so much more free time, so I assume so. Yeah, but we appreciate you guys giving us the time, and we'll catch you next Tuesday for a sports episode, maybe of more awards. I hope not. But we'll catch you guys then. Bye, guys.
Bye.